This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we talk genomics and how to architect workloads with Florian Feldhaus. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipark. Zipark. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio with me today on the phone from Germany, Florian Feldhaus. Hi, Florian. Hello. So, Florian, uh, for those of us who don't know you, what do you do at NetApp and how do we reach you? I'm a cloud solution architect at NetApp, um, specializing on data lakes, uh, data pipelines, doing a lot of stuff with big data and uh, helping customers build new solutions um, in all kinds of areas, media, genomics, uh, and wherever people are shifting lots of data. You can reach me via Twitter, um, FLFeld, and via LinkedIn, and I'm happy to get in contact with you. So I invited Florian because here at the podcast, we like to invite people to know what they're talking about. So Florian definitely knows what he's talking about, and he's very detail-oriented, and we wanted to talk about general architectures, and specifically, we want to talk about architectures in genomics. But before we get into that, um, Florian, if you could kind of give us a rundown of what the genomic workload looks like. So what we usually see, and we are not the experts in, in genomic sequencing, um, there's a sequencer um, sequencing uh, genomic data. They produce data, which is then being stored um, or further analyzed, further processed. And um, we have different formats of data, which is um, then stored for optimal analysis later on. And um, so customers have all these sequences running on, on uh, DNA. Um, they produce um, fast queue files, which uh, have all the uh, sequencing, um, the sequences. And then they, they do further processing of the data and try to find similarities in the DNA or um, try to, to check for a new drug, um, if it'll work, if, if it'll fix a specific issue somewhere. And uh, we often have... Um, new data coming in. There's a big pool of, of uh, genomic data available. And um, kind of there are a lot of companies now running um, their own algorithms against the, the, the data sets to extract specific features to find out um, if their new products will work, if um, they, they can uh, improve something um, by, while uh, attacking a specific genomic sequence. And that requires a lot of um, compute power and a lot of data processing. So they, they go through massive amounts of data, and um, that's what we usually see from these companies. So, so Florian, would you say that a genomics data lake is a gene pool? <laughs> you could, could say it like that. Um, I think, yeah, basically it's, it's a very big uh, um, data lake and um, lots of genomics uh, from, from everywhere. And the interesting thing is really, we see the, the data coming from public sources, uh, private sources. We have a lot of uh, universities participating, um, a lot of hospitals. Um, and then also the companies, they have their own gene pool, uh, so to say. And um, it's really like um, a lot of free data being available, but um, also specific data sets, which the companies are, are holding, uh, holding um, very close for, for competitive reasons. Um, but in general, this seems to be a, um, a sphere where a lot of sharing takes place. 
So we uh, we covered genomics in general in episode 197, so we won't go too much further into genomics. We're here to talk about architecture and how we actually will create a NetApp solution for genomics workloads. So Florian has done this recently with a few customers. So Florian, if you could give us the general overview of what those architectures looked like. So we're currently mostly focusing in these architectures on uh, processing the data um, and getting results extremely fast. Uh, most of these architectures are HPC-like environments where customers have lots of compute power, um, compute farms where they're running um, jobs against the, the data and they want to um, process the data in the fastest way possible. So um, what we concentrate on is mostly getting the data to the um, CPU cores, doing the analysis, run the jobs, and getting results fast and uh, return the results to the data scientists. From um, a high-level uh, point of view, this mostly um, involves uh, getting the data into the data lake, um, which is coming in from sequences and uh, from other public sources, and then uh, making sure that you have the right data in the right place uh, available with the highest performance, the highest throughput to the um, HPC infrastructure. So would you say this genomics workload can be, a, you know, the architecture for this can be applied to a lot of different workloads? I mean, this isn't just related to genomics. It can, it can be applied to things like HPC? Yeah, we, we see a lot of HPC um, architectures being deployed for genomics. Um, especially like scratch space and um, a lot of um, yeah, HPC concepts where you, how you build your data center uh, because you really want to have a very fast access, no bottlenecks in your network, um, and you really want to keep your uh, CPUs or GPUs completely under load because those are expensive um, and um, you, you want the results very fast. But on the other hand, there are a few specifics which um, make it a bit more um, or require a bit more um, special uh, care when you design the architecture for genomics. And this is mostly because with genomics, we have um, tabular oriented data, so rows and columns. And um, the, the genomic sequences are um, often written in the, or they are written in the uh, tabular um, rows and columns. And now, um, the jobs often run through the rows. And when you look at a classical file, uh, you read the file from the beginning to the end. And that's uh, pretty easy. Most of the systems are optimized for this. And if you really want to read um, a lot of genomics data and really find a specific problem in the genomics or a specific region in the genomics, but from a lot of patients, then you have to check a lot of files but only a very small section of all of those files. Uh, and so you read the, the files in a row or layout and not in a column layout. And that makes it a bit more um, interesting to design such a solution. So how do you work around that type of issue? Like how do you work around columns versus rows? Yeah, we were asked by some customers um, if we could do a translation of, of the metrics um, of, of the files, yeah, um, but I think that's there's no storage system known to me which can do things like this. But on the other hand, if we have uh, a storage system which is really optimized to read small chunks of data, so basically random data out of files, um, th that works extremely well. And 
two systems which are optimized uh, for this is really ONTAP and Storage Grid. And we, we have advantages to really um, deliver the performance required by these applications. Excellent. So would you say a storage operating system that, I don't know, randomly writes and randomly reads anywhere <laughs> in 4K chunks might be good for this? In general, that, that's something which is really working well. So um, we have customers very um, uh, yeah, using ONTAP in a very good way, and they get really good results from ONTAP. Um, How did you know I was talking right, about ONTAP? <laughs> <laughs> the right part is not the, um, the important piece. Yeah, they, they write the data. Um, it's usually coming in in a sequential way. But if you read the data, um, then you really have to check that you get the um, the smaller chunks and that you get the performance right. So what would you say percentage-wise the workload is read to write? Uh, I think it's like 90% read or even higher read. And the read part is a, the important part because writing just occurs all the time. They get new data. They, they try to collect data from all kinds of sources. But um, if there's an, a new product going out or some someone discovers a new feature in the, the genomics data set, they have to be extremely fast to get results. And there um, the, the focus of the development lies that we really optimize for reading the data. Um, and to, to get the best performance out of this. So let's talk about the reads and how we can get that to work the best. Um, what sort of architecture, platform, you know, storage features are you pushing to get the best possible read performance out of an ONTAP system? So for the ONTAP system, we're really using flex groups uh, together with Fabric Pool, um, where we see that we get um, the benefits from lots of controllers where we um, have uh, lots of files on multiple controllers and we can benefit of the full performance of a large cluster. And this really runs very well with 22 nodes, 24 node clusters, which our customers are deploying for genomics. And we get a huge amount of performance out of these systems. Um, the advantage really by using flex groups is um, it can make, um, it can deliver the performance from every controller, from all the aggregates, all the disks, um, and can scale really well. Um, the advantage really is now that you can combine this together with Fabric Pool, so we can um, store nearly an unlimited amount of data on this. And we have um, customers deploying flex groups together with Fabric Pool, where the hot data stays on the uh, ONTAP system, the cold data is being moved to the object store, which is most of the time storage grid, and where we can really keep huge amount of data um, in assess for the data scientists. So how much cold data are we talking about in these workloads, like percentage-wise? That, that's a bit of a problem. So um, sometimes we we see companies and uh, public um, entities like universities are keeping a lot of data just to be able to process the data. Then we have usually like 90 95% of cold data, maybe even more, because um, they just keep the data sets, and if they need them, um, they will just get them back, um, and they they have the advantage with ONTAP that it's completely transparent to the end users. They can just operate on a petabyte data lake without caring where the data is really um, staying, if it is hot or cold. They just get the data, and um, it is being delivered in a uh, high-performance way. So what about the hardware itself? I mean, are we using Flash, or are we using uh, spinning disk? Is, or, or can either work? And it, if so, do I need to put any sort of caching in front of it, like Flash Pool? What we really need to do is we need to get the performance of the um, 
yeah, range reads or um, chunks out of the data um, in, a, in the right way. And that's where Flash really helps. So for spinning disks, the best way is to really read the, uh, the files from, from beginning to end in a column way. But as I already said, we have more like these rows where we uh, read small pieces of data, but from a lot of files. And that's where um, Flash can really help because Flash doesn't really care where in the file you re read. It's really um, giving uh, use the same latency all of the time and it's always low latency. So um, using flash pool or all flash aggregates are um, a real benefit. And if you can combine this with flash pool, um, uh, sorry, with fabric pool, where we uh, put this, the cold data out to the object store, we're keeping the hot data on the flash and we always get the best performance of the hot data. So that works extremely well. And it's a use case we see in many um, similar applications where you have hot data, you do AI or um, yeah, um, data extraction from um, your data lake and you need um, the hot data to be available very fast. That's where AFF and Fabric Pool really, uh, really shines. Yeah, and with, with Fabric Pool, what you can do is actually leverage AFF as if it were a cache, right? You don't have to buy tons of flash storage. You can use Fabric Pool to offload it to your cold data to spinning disk. And then, you know, the AFF can just simply be a one or two shelf cache, essentially. Correct. And what we really see is people starting with small AFF systems and a lot of um, data um, being put in the uh, data lake and the cold storage. And they can just scale on the cold storage and on the hot storage. If they need more performance, they scale on the hot side. If they need more capacity, they usually scale on the cold side. And um, this makes it really easy to, to keep the cost under control, but also be able to scale in the performance um, sector by just providing more flash. So earlier you mentioned Scratch Space, and we've talked about data lakes. I'm guessing there's a difference between those two. And if there is, where does a data lake live in terms of ONTAP and you know, NetApp feature, and where does a Scratch Space live? So for, for Scratch Space, we see that customers are more and more often either adopt a lot of spinning disks. So if you really need a very big um, Scratch Space, then you have lots of disks or they use um, fl uh, Flash for Scratch Space. But the thing about uh, Scratch Space is it's usually um, ephemeral. So you, you, you use it for a short amount of time. You work on the data. You write a lot. You read a lot. Um, it has to be really fast. Often it has to be um, low latency. And that's where the all flash systems really shine, where you get a lot of performance out of, let's say, an AFF 300, 700, or 800. And especially with NVMe and um, NVMe um, over fabric, you can get very, very low latency. So it's optimal for, for um, yeah, performance for low latency and for scratch space. Um, on the other hand, we see that the data lake more or less keeps all the static data. Yeah, so the, the results or um, the, the uh, genomics files which are being processed and they, the data lake just has to be really huge. It has to be very scalable from a performance and a capacity point of view, but we don't have uh, overrides and we don't have yeah, changes in the data. We just get usually more data. Sometimes a bit of deleted data is being deleted, but um, in general, the data just grows because new data sets become available and customers tend to keep the old data to be able to process a very large data sets or um, to be able to query old data sets um, and compare them with newer data sets um, to verify their uh, findings. 
So I guess the scratch space would be high ingest, uh, kind of like a place where you can create data that would eventually go into the data lake, right? The data lake is where we keep stuff we care about. Scratch space, we care about it, but we don't care that much about it. If it you know goes away if somehow, we can always build a new one. It just would not be ideal, right? Correct. And there's a difference. Some, some applications require local scratch space than it is local disks, but most of the applications, they require a central um, yeah, scratch space, which is shared among uh, many servers. And that's what we can achieve very, very well with NFS, uh, where we get a lot of performance out of the storage systems. We have central file locking. Um, we can share this with thousands of uh, HPC servers. Um, that's, that's working really well for scratch space. So are you always seeing these environments using NFS or are they using other protocols? Um, yeah, the thing is um, we s- still see a lot of um, HPC environments using InfiniBand and uh, really creating separate infrastructures using HPC-specific protocols uh, and HPC um, yeah, file systems. But this... Um, it's going down a bit because um, network um, is or Ethernet is becoming more and more common. Um, it's, it's getting much faster, uh, much lower latency. We get much better switching infrastructure. And um, more and more customers say, okay, I build a 100 gigabit um, uh, infrastructure on Ethernet and I completely get rid of my, all my InfiniBand and I'm using uh, NFS instead of HPC file systems um, for the scratch space and for. Uh, my work directories, um, and they also can use users, uh, user homes, group folders, um, put all of this on NFS, have a central storage system which can provide all of this, and Ethernet is much easier to handle with, uh, than InfiniBand at the end. So we, we see a general trend going to Ethernet, um, but still there's some uh, applications which are using InfiniBand with HPC file systems. Yeah, you mentioned InfiniBand, I'm guessing you're thinking of things like uh, GPFS type of file systems? Correct. GPFS, Lustrous, Spectrum Scale, um, those type of file systems, they work really well. Um, but they, what we hear is they tend to be so, uh, a bit of on the complex side to manage. And especially if you want to concentrate on getting the results, um, then an on-tap system, which is just working and um, which may be already existing somewhere, um, works really well. So we have some universities. They have, um, yeah, their storage for the university um, applications, they are already running an ONTAP system, and they now start with uh, more and more HPC um, applications. So they just reuse and expand their uh, existing ONTAP cluster, and that's something where you really can um, benefit from the scalability of ONTAP. You can just add new workloads like an HPC workload. You can protect your uh, important databases using quality of service and give the remaining performance out to uh, the HPC environment. We touched on fabric pools. We touched on flex groups and other ONTAP pieces. What other ONTAP features are these uh, customers using for their genomics workloads? So what we see quite often is um, cloning, um, that we see customers providing a, a read-write view of the uh, of a data lake or of a, a specific um, analysis to it, uh, another team. And they can continue to work on this without destroying anything and without the, uh, the requirement to uh, do a full copy of the data. And that's um, where we can... Um, yeah, work really well with flex clones, and that's what customers really like about the uh, ONTAP system. So flex clone, that's one. Um, snapshots, I guess, is another, right? 
Yeah, snapshots, especially if, if you have like home folders, group folders, you're producing results, you don't want to lose them. Um, that's something we, we see very often. On the data lake part, um, snapshots are not that important because we just create new data, but still snapshots save us from accidentally deleted data. Yeah, So it's not like um, with a VMware environment where you want to go back to a previous version. It's more like a protection for you that not, uh, someone doesn't just delete your um results or your uh, carefully created data at some point. And given that a lot of these genomics customers are in EMEA, I would guess that GDPR comes into play. So what sort of features help us there for GDPR and data protection and security? Yes, the, the, the thing we have is quite a few of um, healthcare-related um, data sets have to be uh, stored for a very long time. And we have to be uh, able to provide the um, proof that the data cannot be deleted or cannot be tampered with. And that's something where we are using SnapLock to provide this guarantee out to the customers. Uh, it's something ONTAP can help the customers provide their compliance or realize their compliance requirements and uh, give a guarantee um, which they can show to the people checking all of um, all, all the compliance requirements. So thinking about this, you know, this is genomics data. Is it tracked by name of patient or is this just like generic genomics data that we can't identify people with i think that's something we we're not uh, told very often and i think they the, the people we are working with are very close sometimes um, talking about what they actually have uh, on the data part um, the requirements are definitely that they have patient related data at some points but I think most of the genomic data sets um, are being anonymized. They, they have specific features uh, in this, a specific metadata um, associated with the um, data sets. But um, I think only in specific scenarios, and there we are moving more to the hospital sector, healthcare sector, um, where we specific genomic uh, sequences of a specific patient are analyzed. And as soon as you have a relation between a uh, existing person and the data set, then there's all kinds of um, uh, data protection and data privacy laws you have to take care about. And that's something where we have to uh, rely on the security of an ONTAP system um, to really give out the guarantees that no one can just break into the system, steal the data, get access to data if he's not authorized to assess the data. Yeah, and I'm guessing with these genomic sequences, uh, what they're actually doing probably is just dropping the names and then turning it into male, 36, brown hair, right? And, and trying to tag the data that way so that if somebody exercises their right to be forgotten, it's not as hard to deal with. <laughs> yeah, correct. So um, if it's really anonymized um, and it's just uh, including features, that's pretty easy. If you have um, a specific genomic sequence for person um, that will have an identifier, and then it's much harder to identify the data, delete the data, um, and execute the right to forget, um, which is a big challenge for a lot of uh, hospitals. But with ONTAP, we have the ability to delete and make sure that um, data is being purged, uh, is being scraped from the system, and uh, yeah, that so, the customers can can invoke this right. So, what feature is that that allows you to do that? Uh, <laughs> I think you you have to help me. Um, it's I'm uh, leading you to the to file the delete. Well, so there's that, but there's also the NetApp volume encryption, right? So you can encrypt the volume to protect at rest. 
And within NetApp and Volume Encryption, we have Secure Purge, which is the crypto shredding of file, right? Yeah, correct. That's what I meant. Well, no, no, I, and I was just leading you there because that's, that's kind of where I was thinking, you know, if you have genomics data and you have healthcare data, you need a way to protect that at rest for, with encryption, and that's one way to do it. And the good thing is really NVE, um, NetApp Volume Encryption works with, um, fabric, uh, with Flex Groups, with Fabric Pool. Um, so you get all the benefits we already discussed and you get all the security as well. And now we have NetApp Aggregate Encryption, which is aggregate level encryption for all volumes on an aggregate, which also helps Flex Groups because it gives you better storage efficiencies in that Flex Group via cross-volume deduplication. Yeah, so maybe we can talk a bit more about uh, efficiencies. Hey, there we are. We're there. That's that's. I led us there. See, I, I can do Great. this. <laughs> yeah, but, so continue. With, with, with the genomics, efficiency is a bit of a um, problematic thing. Um, in general, there's a lot of efficiencies to be gained because um, the, the raw data is more or less text data, textual data. Um, it's usually stored in, um, in binary formats. I think the the text format is called SAM format. The binary format is called BAM uh, format. And you sometimes hear CRAM formats as well, or CRAM files as well. Um, so BAM files and CRAM files are more or less the same. And um, they use a specific um, compression algorithm to compress the data. And the compression is um, yeah, very specific to the genomic sequencing, because um, if you have a the right way to, to combine um, or to, to group this, you can have a lossless, um, incre- uh, lossless compression with very high compression uh, ratios. But the normal uh, compression we are using in ONTAP isn't working that well. So that's where NetApp is partnering with companies like Petagene um, to get the most out of the um, compression and reduce the storage space required uh, in the end. And this also helps with, with flash storage. Yeah, If you uh, get really fast flash storage and very high compression ratios, then you can use uh, much less um, flash storage to get much better um, yeah, performance out of the system. So with the compression stuff, you mentioned you know these files are often already compressed, and to get greater compression out of them, we have to go third party because you know, we can't really compress them any more than they already compressed in ONTAP. Correct. Um, so they, they are being compressed by, um, for instance, Petagene, and um, we store the compressed files. And that's something um, where we see that for a data lake, it makes sense to store this on a storage um, which is pretty cheap. Yeah. In the end, we don't want to to waste SS, uh, SSD file, SSDs, NVMe file drives um, to store um, the the data we can't compress any further. And there we are usually um, using um, object storage for storing the files in the end. And um, that's what we see with many companies where where they are moving to an object storage as a data lake. And this can be fabric pool. And in some cases, it's also directly using storage grid or object storages um, where they um, store the data, archive the data. And we have multiple different use cases for this. Okay, so before we get into that aspect, let me ask you about the ratios you get for compression as well as deduplication and compaction. So what sort of ratios are you seeing with these data sets? So from ONTAP side, we see like a few percent, 3%, 4% efficiency from the ONTAP side. And that's because the files are pre-compressed. 
and we can't get more efficiency out of the data. And that's from compression, but what about from like deduplication and that sort of thing? Mm, there's not much from deduplication because um, with compressed data, um, it's more like a, a random bunch of data. Yeah, so um, it, it really looks like random data to deduplication. Okay, so compression actually can impact how well deduplication works. Correct. Okay. So you mentioned storage grid and you mentioned object store is how some customers are going with the data lake. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. So Fabric Pool can leverage storage grid and object stores. How is that different than actually leveraging a native object storage? Yeah, so with, with Fabric Pool, it's completely transparent. Customers are using NFS, they want to file assess, it's working great with ONTAP and Fabric Pool. Um, the thing is more or less customers want to scale even more. And um, with ONTAP, we're still limited to the data center. Yeah? The data center can be huge, it can be an HPC uh, cluster, but um, as I already mentioned, we have now multiple entities sharing data and generating data all around the world. And we have some of the largest uh, genomics uh, institutions and uh, companies using uh, NetApp products for genomic sequencing and, and processing the data. And their requirement is to have a global data lake, which can be assessed from everywhere across different uh, continents. And... Um, where they are really able to get extremely high performance for a very low cost and being able to share the data with universities, other internal um, institutions, and across other companies. Yeah, Because a lot of these genomic data sets are um, open, are, are being shared, and um, that's something where Object Store uh, really shines. So there's another benefit to Object Store outside of that as well, right? It's the, it's the tagging, the, the metadata piece. Correct. So with, with metadata and tagging, you can already annotate um, your data. You can easily find the data, identify the data. Um, you can search for the data. You can share specific um, data sets based on the metadata or the text um, they're being associated to. Um, so that, that's giving you um, a lot more flexibility in managing your data and um, also helps you to identify which data sets can be shared, should not be shared, belong to a specific project, uh, to or belong to a specific data set, and you can really search through your data lake. And in this case, or in, in many cases we're working with, we have petabytes of data and billions of uh, files or objects, and it's really hard to keep track of them if, if you don't have any tagging or metadata available. So as far as um, that goes, I mean, are you seeing these customers looking at the cloud at all, whether it's hybrid or public or private cloud? Yeah, that, a lot of the, the data sets are in the cloud. There are public websites where you can download data sets. Um, data is being shared um, from multiple clouds or multiple institutions. So we see um, either universities or companies building out their own cloud infrastructures. Others are hosting the data on the public cloud um, infrastructures. And um, even others are just keeping it in their internal data lakes and copying to uh, public locations on demand. But uh, the big piece around this is the data has to be moved around. And uh, you, need to, you really need a data fabric around this to, to move the data. And um, that's something which we can really help customers with, getting uh, the data under control, moving it from different uh, locations, being it a public cloud, private cloud, um, yeah, companies you work together with, um, you, you're working together and um, 
getting the data in, uh, into mobility. So how are backups working with this? I mean, are they leveraging SnapMirror? Are they leveraging NDMP? Or are they looking at things that are new like Endes? Um, for for the ONTAP um, side, we're usually using SnapMirror. We're using Endes um, or looking into Endes um, where we can um, put the backups into the cloud, into an object store. Um, on the other hand, we're seeing customers say, okay, the, the um, object store is already our uh, archive and they put all the data sets into the object store and then it pl- just apply an SLA to the object store and say, I want to have two copies of this or I want to have one copy on, on premise and another copy in the, crowd, uh, in the cloud. I want to use Azure Archive or GCP or uh, AWS Glacier. And um, the SLA um, determines where the data has to be stored, um, maybe also in which country the data can be stored. And then the data fabric, um, or the in this case, storage grid, takes care of placing the data um, according to the SLA. So as far as Endaz goes, I mean, are customers looking at that for the functionality also for the search capabilities, right? So you're going into an object store and you now can use Elasticsearch. Would that be something they would use for, you know, instead of having everything in an object storage, or would they use that in, in addition to having everything in an object storage? Yeah, I think in the end, it really depends um, a bit on, on the use case. Um, we have most of the customers keeping their databases separately at the moment because they have so many sources of data. But um, if you have the ability to get everything in a central data lake, then it definitely helps to have a, a, the ability to search through the data um, using Elasticsearch and index uh, the data and make sure that you have all the um, the features of the data, the data sets being tagged and being um, associated with some metadata um, so that you can easily find uh, the data required by the data scientists. You mentioned Petagene as a third-party genomics um, partner, essentially. Do you see any other partners like um, ProLion? Is that something that you see out there in addition, in addition to that? The thing is, currently, I'm working. Uh, I'm not working too much with with partners, um, but we definitely have a lot of partners out in the field who are helping our customers. And um, this really depends on the the customer situation. And um, I think that most of the partners are really driving um, the the projects at our customers. Um, I think there are a lot of customers, a lot of partners who are doing um, most of the work from getting the infrastructure set up, um, making sure that you have um, the search infrastructure available, that you are um, that you get the data into the data lake, that you get the data movement, the complete data fabric set up, and that's where partners are really shining. And then they bring additional features like um, compression or um, indexing or um, searching of, of data into this, in, and especially if you want to share data with others, uh, that's what, what partners really can do well. So let's talk about one of the customer stories, or maybe two of the customer stories um, that we have. So we can't really mention them by name, but we have two large genomics customers that you have architected for. So can you talk about those customers and what you did as far as solutions go for them? Yeah, so one customer is currently using a very large um, ONTAP cluster. Uh, I think they, they were at 24 nodes, currently at 22 nodes. Uh, they're using flex groups with fabric pool, and um, they're storing huge amounts of data in this. They're processing the data in a very fast way. 
and um, they're doing 70, 80 gigabyte per second throughput through this. Um, they're really happy with the infrastructure. Um, it's running a lot of um, data very fast for their analysis. And um, yeah, they, they have most of the data now on AFF systems with Fabric Pool in the background. And um, Fabric Pool is moving the cold data to storage grid. They're using SG6060 storage grid systems and on the, a variety of controllers in the front end, um, on-tap controllers. And that's really working very well from a performance point of view attached to their HPC system. How big is your um, storage grid? How, how large is that? I think currently we're at 10 petabytes or something. Um, I would have to look it up. It's, it's growing pretty fast. Um, and the thing is really, they don't care about the, the size of the, the object storage. If they need a new capacity in the object storage, they just add another um, storage grid appliance. Yeah, and that's a, the nice thing about storage grid. If you need more capacity or more performance, you just add more nodes. And you can scale linearly with the number of um, appliances or the number of nodes you add. And the other customer we're working with is um, they had a, a bit of a different requirement where they were architecting a solution mostly for archiving data or they, they wanted to get um, the data off their HPC infrastructure and they were searching for a global data lake. And uh, um, the thing is, they required a solution which worked across the world. And believe it or not, um, the cloud providers currently can't do um, a global data lake. If you go to Amazon, if you go to Google, if you go to Azure, um, the data is always stored in a single region. And you can set up um, region replication or getting the data from one region into another, but then the data is being copied. Yeah, it's not a, a global data lake. And um, the customer said, okay, I, I have data scientists working all around the world, working with the same data sets, and they should have local access to the data for highest performance and best uh, throughput. So they were searching for a solution which can store data according to SLAs across the globe in multiple regions and multiple countries, uh, continents. And that's what Storage Grid can do. We build a, a global data lake with three sites, two in the US, one in, uh, in Swiss. And um, the, the um, sites are being connected via, I think, 40 gigabit and 100 gigabit of VAN connections, wide area network connections. And in tests, we were being able to separate those links, those uh, wide area uh, networks. And um, all the data is being distributed across all sites. And then the data says, uh, scientists can work locally on the data. And we're even uh, able to reduce the cost of the data uh, by using erasure coding. So they keep the um, copy, I think, three copies um, for 45 days. And after the data is not being assessed actively anymore, they are doing erasure coding on the data. And instead of like three, three copies, they just have 1.5 copies. So in a so, use case like that, where they have a global distribution of data, would FlexCache also be able to be used in that situation? Yeah, the, the thing with FlexCache is really um, you, you can use it in a very similar way, um, where you have um, ONTAP systems distributed all around the world, and you assess the data via um, a FlexCache. I think FlexCache really shines if you have small data and if you have really low latency requirements. Um, and uh, it can also work um, for data lakes, but for in this kind, uh, in this scenario, it was really targeted for very large data. So they they chose um, storage grid. But if you have 
lots of small data, a very high throughput um, and uh, latency, low latency demand, then FlexCache is um, working really well. When you say big data, do you mean file sizes? Yeah, so file sizes usually are 60 gigabyte, 100 gigabyte large files um, which are being stored um, and they have thousands and thousands of them. Okay, excellent. So what else did that solution have? Yeah, so the, the advantage really for them is it has cheap storage based on Nilla and Zas disks. Um, but on the other hand, um, it's delivering a lot of uh, or reasonably good throughput uh, performance um, because in their case, they are storing the data uh, in a sequential way and then they are reading back the data in a sequential way to their scratch space. And that can be on tap again. Yeah, so it's really sequential write, sequential read, and a lot of performance out of a, a huge bunch of um, pretty cheap disks. And that's something where they said, okay, that we, we really need to have a cost-optimized solution um, for this, this archive piece. It has to be accessible from all around the world. It has to be really fast. Um, and um, that's yeah something we designed um, together. And I think they're, they're pretty happy with it. Yeah, it's interesting because these customers, they want to save money, but they also need the performance. So there has to be a blend of options there. You can't just go with the highest end stuff, but you also can't go with the low end stuff either. Yeah, I think it's really, um, we see a lot of Nilla and Zas disks or like the spinning disks, um, but um, because they are still much cheaper than the, the, the uh, SSD drives. On the other hand, uh, the SSD drives are going down in prices and we have a lot of requirements where you have to, to read data with low latency. You have to do um, a lot of overrides uh, working on the data, really like a scratch space. And then SSDs are, are really um, where, uh, where you can do all, all of these workloads. So as far as emerging technologies go, what do you see as one or two of the biggest game changers for this industry, right? Like what sort of things coming down the pipe? Not necessarily on tap roadmap, but just things that are out there in, in general that you would see as biggest gains for the genomics customers. So what I think is, is could make a big difference is really uh, getting even higher throughput, even higher performance. And uh, we're currently looking into situations where we have a bunch of NVMe drives um, connected to uh, 100, 200 gigabit Ethernet um, and really deliver a lot of performance for, for read data. Um, using this as a cache, and this could be flex cache, it could be something like a varnish cache in front of storage grid, um, which we, um, we have now available, where you get like 10 gigabyte per second or even more out of single uh, cache system and um, deliver extremely high performance. And if this cache system goes down, um, that's not a big problem because you have all the data in your data lake. But the, the cache systems are something where we think um, you get an additional performance benefit um, for the critical data, especially if you have a very high demand on um, time to market or getting an analysis done in a very short of, uh, amount of time. And um, that, that's something we see a lot of development currently, getting the NVMe connected to the uh, Ethernet. And um, I think it's, it's worth look, really looking into this because NVMe drives today can deliver more than the, uh, any network infrastructure can cope with. Um, so it's, it's really getting the performance on the net, from the drives to the network to the CPUs and uh, improving all this, these parts. And another thing is what we're currently seeing is application design. And that's something we're talking a lot about um, where we see 
customers still having more monolithic uh, application, which is processing data sequentially. Um, and they are moving more and more to a um, situation where mu much more is parallelized um, and much more processes are executed in parallel. And that's something we're working very closely together with, with NVIDIA, where we have GPUs being able to execute thousands of uh, processes on um, GPU cores in, uh, in parallel. And then um, you need to provide all the data and you keep the, the GPU cores busy. Um, so you, you have a really high performance to this, but your problems uh, need to be parallelizable. Your applications need to be able to parallelize um, and to assess all the data in parallel. And that's something we're working together with a lot of companies, a lot of software suppliers to um, yeah, parallelize the work and um, NVIDIA is a big partner of ours, which we're working together to do this. On the other hand, we're working with the customers to get the knowledge we have, the knowledge NVIDIA has into them and help them uh, solve the problems even faster. Yeah, I mean, NVIDIA provides the DGX1 servers, and those are usually, you, you hear about them with AI workloads, but you also see a lot of them in the genomics space, right? Correct. Um, not even not only DGX one, also DGX two now, and there we have even more GPU power at our hands. So we we need to really make sure that we get all the data to the GPUs, and um, that's that's pushing the infrastructure uh, quite to the limits. We're seeing also that that people don't really understand what what non-blocking I/O is and what what it means to go through like a CPU in some cases and interrupts and and, and we're, we're reviewing the basic stuff in many cases now where we really don't want um, data to pass through the CPU yeah we want to, to go it from the PCI bus from the NVMe drives directly to the network or from the network directly to the GPUs we don't want to waste any. Uh, cycles on, on processing IOs or IOs uh, interrupts. Yeah, and that, that was going to be my next question. So are you seeing customers starting to kick the tires at all on things like max data, where you bring that data closer to the, the CPU and closer to the server? I think with um, genomics, we're not um, currently, or for the genomics data processing, we're not using max uh, data. But when we have the databases and the, the features extraction and searching and redefining information, and we, we may already have generated results, that's where Max Data uh, really shines, where we can get very low latency assessed to the data. And um, in case of in cases where you really have to, to find something in a data set where you have to search for something um, using Max Data and really low latency. Um, storage assess is, is a key feature to ex, uh, extremely accelerate your workloads. And I think the, the jump from SSDs to NVMe or from uh, SATA drives to, to SSD drives was much less than the jump from SSD drives to max data. The performance um, benefits are much, much better than just jumping from SATA to SSDs. There's so much benefit you get from it. I think there's a lot of lot going on at the moment um, and a lot of developments we are, we are seeing. Um, Sometimes it's because you have to bring so many people together from the infrastructure side, application side. Um, the companies have to move, have to do new ways to analyze the data, um, working with new AI tools. Um, that it's a lot of change going on currently, a lot of things. And I think that's a positive thing where we can adopt new technologies, review what we have done uh, previously, and adopt new technologies to uh, really help getting things done. And I think especially genomic sequencing uh, is something 
people really benefit in the end. Um, this can increase the um, overall life. This can create new drugs, which can uh, help self, uh, save people or um, cure people. And it's really something which has an impact on everyone. Yeah, we were talking about this on the uh, previous genomics podcast, and it also impacts farm, right? Like the growing crops and how we actually are able to grow more crops now. That's a big topic. If uh, Every time I'm in our headquarters in Amsterdam, they are telling me about these uh, insects and how they now uh, grow insects uh, for proteins. And they're really investing a lot into new ways of, of yeah, creating food and uh, finding ways to create food in a CO2 uh, neutral way. And uh, yeah, eating insects may be something I'm not uh, familiar with. But they are really looking into the optimal way, like breeding specific insects, which are a lot of proteins, and um, looking at, at the optimal way to do this, also by genomic sequencing. Have they uh, created Soylent yet? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you, do, you, do you know what Soylent is? I don't know if that made it over to you guys. Soylent Green, Soylent. have you heard of this? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I heard <laughs> of that. Okay. Wasn't sure if that, you were... Yeah, anyway... All right. Uh, so, Florian, thanks so much for joining us today uh, and giving us the lowdown on what you've been doing in the genomic space as far as architecture goes. Again, if we wanted to reach you, how would we do that? So, yeah, reach me via LinkedIn or via Twitter, uh, FL Felt. Um, and, yeah, we're happy to, to get in touch with you. All right. Excellent. Thanks so much, Florian. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at NetUp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Florian Feldhaus for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.